Do you use trekking poles? Yeah, I do. I, my buddy who I, the, uh, uh, Timberline trail was asking me about that and why like, man, my arms just get bored. You yeah. know, like those people who walk or run and their arms don't move. And you're just like, man, that's kind of weird. <laughs> like, you know, you're, you're walking all day long. So if you don't ha- have hiking poles, you know, you do the classic, you put your thumb underneath your shoulder straps. You might put your hands behind your head. You're just constantly doing things with your arms. And I figure that the, for me, hiking poles, the trekking poles just keeps my arms engaged. There's also just the benefit of not twisting your ankle and walking over uh, various terrain and falling one way and having the trekking pole save you. You know, when you're having to ford rivers, those poles are really important as stabilizers, you know. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. Sig is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, Sig Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, Sig Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. How far have you hiked? Um, I do this calculation often when I'm telling stories. I think over the past, I've almost said 10 years, I think 20 years now, I think I've probably hiked over 10,000 miles. 10,000 miles. Yeah, which is, it's interesting. It sounds like a lot, but then when you talk to other real through hikers, the people who just continually do it, my number is dwarfed by their number. So uh, I think what I take most pride in is the idea that I've lived out in the woods cumulatively for over a year. And that to me is more when I chat with my daughter or other people who don't live this kind of life or they don't understand it. You know, mileage is a little bit more abstract, especially when you get into that type of mileage. But, but time is something that people can understand. So I always drop that one. Like I've, I've lived out in the woods for over a year. And that has happened probably since the time I was 30. I'm 42 now. So, you know, I think the percentage when I was 30 was greater relative to what it is now. But it's still something that I really take a lot of pride in. So did you start with a through hike? That's another question. Like the older I get, I, I, I kind of continually have these ideas on Rolodex where I'm just thinking about like what caused what. And you know what? This past weekend I was up at Orcas Island and it's taken me 17 years of living in Portland to finally visit. And that place is incredible. And we went up there with a couple of buddies and they've got a son who's probably like 10 or 11. And we just happened to find ourselves in a bookstore. And with that, 
also just happened to see the book Hatchet by Gary Paulson. And this little dude, Enzo, who's a, a friend of ours, um, he just moved up to Delano Bay from Portland. He's kind of on his own in the wilderness with his, with his family. You know, it's not in the middle of, of nowhere, but compared to Portland, it is. And he's kind of got into the outdoors. So I bought him this book. And as I was buying that book, I was thinking like, this is kind of maybe how it all started. You know, besides being the first book that I remember not being able to put down, it was just about this little boy who had to survive on his own with a hatchet. And so then, you know, let's say I read that at 10, then fast forward eight years, um, or not eight years, about 12 years later, I'm graduating college. I had done a little bit of camping with my dad, uh, my family, but it was mostly just going out here or there. And you know, it's that classic, you go out with your dad, it's the death march where you're walking probably only like five, 10 miles, but at the time it feels like you're walking forever. Um, and so I think with Hatchet and I think with those marches that my dad took us on, I, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say I knew what through hiking was. It wasn't until I was in college and had gone to this little outfitter, foot sloggers in uh, Boone, North Carolina. And I just saw a map. And it just said Georgia to Maine. I'd heard about the Appalachian Trail, but never really knew much about it. Uh, I graduated college and was just like, hey, I don't want to work. I've been working my ass off. Uh, I was working in restaurants and saving up money. I was on this pattern of saving money and traveling, running out of money, going back to restaurants, saving up money, traveling. And I just saw, hey, like this is a good, cheap way to uh, make my dollar go farther. So Saw that map at Foot Sloggers, tried to figure it out within a few weeks and was off to the races and just jumped onto the Appalachian Trail May 25th, 2001. Um, so how it started, that was kind of the long answer to say, I don't know. It's just a series of random happenstances, maybe from Hatchet, maybe from hiking with my dad to seeing a map. It was just something that I was curious about and I gave it a go. We ended up talking about books quite a bit on this show. And I don't think that any single book has come up more often than Hatchet. No way. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just think it's the nature of, uh, of the type of person that I'm interested in, I guess. And uh, in the type of person that I am as well, I need to reread it at this point. You know, I see no reason why I shouldn't reread that book, but I recently um, started going away from knives for hunting and a friend of mine here locally who, uh, who's been on the show. He won the show Forged in Fire. He's he's our English teacher at the local high school. He built this game axe for me, which looks like a hatchet, but I'm not a like a knife and steel guy. So I don't really know the, the nuances on why what should be named what, but he says it's a game axe. And uh, so now I'm you know, doing everything from the initial cuts to like processing meat with this uh, ostensibly a hatchet. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I've got to reread it. Okay, so 2001. May, is May the time to start? No. Uh, most people <laughs> probably like March or April. Uh, and I'm recollecting from 20 years ago. So yeah. that's my point of reference. I right. would say that that's probably a similar time that people leave. Maybe April is a sweet spot. March, there's still a little bit of snow on the Appalachian Mountains. Or in the Appalachian Mountains, it's still a little chilly. I left the end of May, just because I graduated school. Right. Um, and I didn't have any other choice. Also didn't have any other idea. It, you know, 
if I had left in March, if I had left in April or May, it made no difference to me. I just thought like, okay, cool. Let's just, let's go. The problem with leaving in May is, or the advantage, it depends on your personality, is you miss the hordes of people. And that's one of the best parts of hiking to me are the folks that you meet. You know, I have a lot of random people that I would have never met otherwise. Our, our life interests don't intersect, you know, like we just have completely different interests except for through hiking. And then from that experience, it's this tie that bonds. And for the Appalachian Trail, you know, that's the most social trail of them all. And I'm a pretty social dude. Um, I'm still scared of the uh, dark at nighttime. Uh, you know, walking by yourself all day, all night is lonely. I didn't necessarily have that on the Appalachian Trail, but I didn't get to, I didn't have the typical experience that a lot of folks had, you know, and I, I can say that because there's not one person that I talked to today from the Appalachian Trail. Um, you know, I had kind of chance encounters. I was just at the very end. I was at the back of the bus. I was a straggler. And, you know, like I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it's definitely not the prime time that if you want to meet folks and have that social adventure, that's not when you leave. So if you're going north, you're racing against winter if you're planning on making it to the top of Mount Katahdin, right? Yeah. What time of year does that park generally close? Uh, I can't, again, I can't really remember. I, I want to say, you know, come fall time, it can snow and Katahdin is pretty high for where it's at. Uh, I believe sometime in October is when it starts to close. I remember feeling that pressure. I finished September 26, which was four months, one day after I started. But I do remember it being pretty chilly. And I do remember that, you know, I was concerned that it was going to start snowing. I think there's a little bit of dusting here or there. But obviously, there's not a hard date. It just depends on how the weather, what's going on when winter comes when systems move in. Um, but typically I believe towards mid to late October is when you want to try and get done. That said, there's amazing people out there who try and do it in the winter time. They don't really let the weather work as a barrier. Uh, they just use it as an obstacle to get around. Four months is a pretty good clip. How many miles a day were you walking? Um, I think, I think I was probably averaging 20 plus miles. You know, at the very beginning, it always takes my body about a month to get ready um, and to get in shape. And, um, you know, after that, once I got into Virginia, I think I was pumping out, you know, like 20, 25 mile days. And a lot of that goes back to just being lonely. My buddy, one of my best friends who had started the trip with me, he twisted his knee the second day out, hiked for a month, but it just wrecked his body and his legs and he had to hop off. And after he got off, I was just hiking longer days to try and run into folks to hike with. And eventually I met this guy, uh, Mike Garnall. He's from, I think, a little bit outside of Boston. Um, but he was a 44-year-old prison inspector or a prison guard named the inspector. And his pack fully loaded was 20 pounds. My pack fully loaded was probably like 45, 50 pounds. And eventually I met up with him. And I was hiking at an ultra light hiker's pace, but just from the vantage of a traditional backpacker who had a lot of redundancy being 
multiple pairs of clothes. You know, you just had backups upon backups because that's all I knew. So, you know, four months, one day is pretty quick for the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> it mostly had to do with uh, me being lonely. And there was another factor is a friend of mine was getting married and she bumped her wedding up two weeks. So I had to make up that time. Uh, and James, just you've, you've met this person. It is my now wife, Libby. Oh, really? I had to, you know, I've been a good friends of their family. Her sister was a good buddy of mine. She was getting married in the fall time. I think it was towards the end of September, early October. Figured I had plenty of time. She bumped her wedding up two weeks. (laughs) You know, fast forward, like six months later, she got a divorce. Fast forward, I don't know, 10 years later, we got together and eventually got married. So there's a funny little twist of fate in there. That's amazing. How far down the trail were you before you got your trail name? Oh, man, I was in Hot Springs, North Carolina. There was a little shelter. I can't remember what the shelter was. Not shelter, sorry, little hostel. Hot Springs is a cool little hippie town in uh, North Carolina. I think if you were, or a lot of us, if you just drive through it, you'd be like, man, who lives in these places? But that's another great thing of these trips is you meet incredible people. You don't judge a book by its cover because these towns that would otherwise seem just abandoned or uh, little hick towns. They're not, you know, people are people and they're wonderful. And so I stayed in this uh, hostel and there's a few stragglers, some section hikers, a couple through hikers, myself, my buddy, Jason. And, you know, we are just telling our story. This is probably maybe two or three weeks in and we were all just chatting, having a good time. And, you know, I'm half Chinese and half white. And as I was telling that, to uh, these newfound friends are like, oh, kind of like a panda, you know, half white and half black. And then everybody got a good laugh out of it and a good chuckle and it just stuck. They're like, oh man, you're panda. It makes no sense whatsoever other than this conversation. And that's what I love about trail names um, is that sometimes you get a dumb trail name. Like my buddy, a good friend of mine who hiked the Continental Divide Trail, his trail name is Valley Girl because he kind of speaks like a valley girl and it's just <laughs> funny you know like uh, have a dude's name be valley girl and i like the trail names that are earned some people come with them already you know already cemented into who they are they just tell you what their trail name is there's no backstory or history there's no inception story from the trail and i think that's okay too my preference though is just to let it happen it's just a nice rite of passage. I think there's a tradition. I remember reading something about like when you go on these trips, you know, you're kind of in a way shedding who you were and you're being this new person, this new experience. And you let the experience dictate that journey and who you will become. And with that, I think that trail name comes with that. And so I like, I like to honor that tradition. Um, so you know, as, as silly as it is, you know, the story being half white, half black, but actually being half Chinese, half white, and that cements my trail name is Panda. You know, there's, it's not really a rite of passage, but in today's modern day, I think it's just really interesting. Yeah, no, that's funny. That's a good story. And now you alluded to it just now, but what's the difference between the guy who starts the trail and the guy who finishes for you? Like, Oh man. Um, again, another idea that's on Rolodex. I think about this all the time. Maybe it's cause I'm 42 and 
you know, coming into a midlife crisis. But just this idea of why. And, you know, within the past year and a half with uh, the pandemic and the social injustice movement, like just this uprooting of everything, I hope that people are redefining their why and understanding. And the difference between somebody who starts and finishes, man, you could categorize this into many different silos and expand upon it and write a dissertation. But deep down, I don't think there's anything different. I think that what matters most is that you don't get many chances to take a bet on yourself and take that risk and chase that dream. Most people play it safe and that's okay. Some people have a dream and some people act upon it. And the older I get, the more I understand that parents and people above you who, have, who are a little wiser, understand the idea that anything's possible. All you have to do is take that first step. And so the person who gives up something to chase a dream, whether they finish or not, I think that's the difference. And so whether you fit, start or finish, you're better off that you chase this dream. You know, if you only make it one mile, who cares? Like you, you bet on yourself. And that's where, to me, the insight comes from. And if you bet on yourself enough, you build up this confidence and you truly can do anything. So on a, on a philosophical level, I don't think there's really any difference between the person who starts and the person who finishes. It's the person who takes that chance and that risk on themselves. That's really important. I think that's what makes people different. But then other ways, what happens in between, I could say the other differences that I've enjoyed are the community of friends that I've met that I know only by their trail names. Um, I just hiked the Timberline Trail a couple weekends ago, which is just like a 40-mile loop around Timberline. It's pretty fun. You get to see a lot of stuff. But on the way there, there was a buddy who I hadn't seen. He was driving next to us, kind of peeked over a couple of times. And then finally, I just shouted out the window. He rolled down his window. I rolled, rolled down mine. I was like, free fall. What's going on? He's like, Panda, how's it going? We haven't seen each other in a while. And we, again, we hiked on the uh, CDT together. And so that community of folks is something that you get from start to finish. Understanding what your body can do is something that I think is really important um, and really special where you get pushed to the edge um, mentally and physically, physically, you know, your feet hurt, uh, you're hungry. Sometimes you run out of food, you run out of water, you have to drink crappy water. So it's a very humbling experience. It's a level setting experience where you're just like, oh, okay. Like I need, you know, you're talking about a steak or a hamburger. You understand what your body needs. Like, oh, okay. I probably need some protein. Mentally on every single trip, there's been this like mental blocker. And uh, my mom died when I was 17 years old. My dad lived in Atlanta. I lived in North Carolina. Um, I lived with my best friend, Rusty. And uh, that experience is something that I just kind of think about. And usually it takes me about a month and it's this pretty heavy burden, probably heavier than being hungrier, my feet being sore. And then eventually I'll just have some breakdown, which is kind of this cathartic mo moment. And it's for me, I like the idea of black humor and black comedy. And there've been times where I've just broke down, I've broken down sobbing physically, but because of the mental weight that I was carrying, and, you know, I can be joking around with my friends and then all of a sudden it, I just snap, you know, I'm sobbing. I'm thinking about all this stuff. 
And at the same time, I'm laughing. And at that moment, I'm like, okay, game on. Like, this is where it starts and where I have a really good time. And so that's, again, something that I've gotten from start to finish is understanding boundaries and understanding kind of an emotional cleanse. Like, I don't meditate. I don't really do too much yoga, not because I don't believe in it or don't understand the benefits. It's just not my bag, you know? Like, I think hiking is an idea of meditation and yoga, fishing, like these repetitious moments where you can kind of get lost in your thoughts and think about nothing. I'm kind of getting off topic, but there's so many things that you get from start to finish. There's a community, a different perspective. When you finish, you have this kind of mental clarity and you can watch it fade really quickly as you integrate back into the real life. But you got that clarity, you got that insight where most people don't. So again, like I could devote hours upon hours talking to you about that, you know, like a lot of uh, through hikers or a lot of friends, we chat about that. Like, oh man, are you better off? Like, I don't know. Do we have experiences that we wouldn't have had otherwise? Absolutely. So yeah, I don't really know exactly where to go, but I, my life is better because of it. You know, it's kind of gotten to me all, all around the U S um, you know, I hiked the Appalachian trail when I finished that I was in Vermont, hanging out with a buddy who I went to high school with, ended up getting a job at Burton Snowboards, which pretty incredible job to have coming out of college. A joke can say I peaked to it early, but I didn't even work there two years before I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. And when I finished that, spent some time in the Northwest, met up with a friend um, that I went to college with, got a job in Portland, uh, quit my job three years later, hiked the Continental Divide Trail, ended up getting a job after that. So there's so many benefits. I can't tell you any negatives that I've gained from finishing those trips and starting another one. And I just think it's a nice way to break up life. You know, we plug into our jobs and there is really no start or finish. It's just, you're just in it. You're just in the routine and the routine all of a sudden becomes a year, becomes five years, becomes 10 years. And just breaking that up and having something to look forward to and start something new and finishing it that's really insightful to me. There's some emotional baggage that comes off, but if you're starting with a 50 pound pack, I'm guessing there's some gear that you kick out of that pack along the way. What's some stuff you started with that you ended up, ended up saying, you know what? I don't need this anymore. <laughs> Everything in a way. Okay. I just knew traditional backpacking, what my dad bestowed upon me where You've got your mess kit is made up of two or three bowls. You know, you have a knife, a spoon, and a fork. Um, I had a whisper light stove with a one liter gas tank. I had a big bulky water filter. I had my clothing. I had extra sets of, you know, three, four pairs of socks. I had big heavy boots. I had a flashlight and a headlamp. So I just had that kind of older, more traditional way of backpacking where you want to be prepared. It's almost like the Boy Scout, right? Like be prepared. But really in life, you're not prepared, right? It's, it's what happens to you and how you bounce back and adapt that gives you the preparations. And then again, it comes back into that confidence within yourself. But, you know, I had this heavy backpack. I had too much food, too much water. And hiking with the inspector, I'm like, man, you've got this 
backpack slung over one shoulder and you're just like dancing through the woods and I'm grinding through the woods. So the first thing that I did was I got rid of my heavy hiking boots and I got some heavy hiking shoes. Um, still not as heavy, but uh, full leather Gore-Tex, but they were just basically low top hiking shoes. And that was a game changer. I sent home all my pots and pans except for one because all I was really doing was boiling water for mac and cheese or for stovetop stuffing or for instant oatmeal or for, um, you know, eating granola with dehydrated milk. So I shaved down my mess kit. This is all on the Appalachian Trail. So it was mostly uh, an elimination, almost like an elimination diet, but of gear. Sent home all but like two pairs of socks. So I just eliminated that redundancy, had a headlamp. I used, I had a big uh, knife and then kept the, sent that home and kept, you know, the Swiss Army knife that's like two inches tall and it's got a tiny knife, scissors, toothpick and tweezers. That's like my essential knife. So I kind of shed everything and didn't have any redundancy. And that was my experience on the Appalachian Trail. And it probably shaved like five, 10 pounds off my pack. And I didn't get there until probably mid-trip. You know, I still had a backpack that was like seven or eight pounds. But that was kind of my foray. I wouldn't say into ultralight backpacking, but to understanding you don't have to have redundancy and everything to be safe. And to make the experience so much more enjoyable, you just shave pounds off your pack. You know, nobody likes carrying a heavy pack. I've seen a bunch of silly ways to get weight off packs. I see guys who will like paper punch holes out of the straps on their pack, cut their toothbrush in half, some kind of silly stuff like that. What are some practical ways that, that the average guy or the average hunter can, can reduce some weight, you know, that maybe they haven't thought of yet? I can't really speak for hunting. I'm really intrigued with it just from chatting with you and then doing work with Onyx and getting a better uh, glimpse into that world. But the only real difference between hunting and backpacking is carrying a gun and some stuff to be able to get meat back out. Yeah. So I'm just thinking about like the weight for you of like, you might need, you might need structure in your backpack to carry that weight of, of the game that you harvested. You know, I now have a lightweight backpack that probably is a pound, wow. but it doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of framework to it. And sure. that's the difference between maybe what you need and what I need. And I'm sure there's, um, there's a, a happy medium, but the idea of gear that you make yourself, like the, the backpack that I have, I don't have time to make a lot of gear. So some people make homemade quilts, AKA sleeping bags or homemade uh, uh, tents or tarps or homemade backpacks. I ended up just buying that. So I have a tarp tent that's probably 15 years old uh, by this guy, Henry Shires. I don't know if he still is around making those. Um, the backpack that I have is made of Dima. It's from Hyperlite, which is made out of uh, Maine. I have, I've still used my Pepsi can stove that I just made out of two Pepsi cans or Coke cans. Um, Cause fire is fire. And do I need to eat two minutes faster with a jet boil? Mm, maybe, but I don't, you know, I don't mind taking my time. By the time I get to camp, um, you know, I'll start boiling water. And whether it takes five minutes or 10 minutes, it doesn't really matter. I have chores to do, like uh, put out my tent if I'm pitching it, you know, like get ready for bed, stretch, clean up. So I think that Pepsi can stove is a great way. 
you know, just, just denatured alcohol. The other thing. So the, the Pepsi can stove is like the bottom of two cans pushed together. You got some holes in one side of it. And do you have like a little bit of insulation in it or something? No, it's basically, uh, you know, you're making a, a single wall that sucks up the denatured alcohol or alcohol or heat. And then you have tops. It's basically a solo stove. You know, the, the stoves that pop up on everybody's social channel or uh, ads. It's basically that. It's like a double combustion little stove where it's sucking up heat in the center hole and drawing air in from the top. So it burns really hot, burns really cleanly. And it weighs, I don't know, a couple ounces. Yeah. Um, and then I just have some stakes that I use for my tent that I hammer into the ground that I put my pot in. And then I, I've used foil as a wind guard. Now I've just got some sh- uh, small sheet metal that I fabricated. And by fabricate, I mean, I just cut out into a long <laughs> and wrap around it. Like none of this stuff, it, it's all things that you can get at your local hardware store. Yeah. Now for uh, water filtration, I'm an idiot where I just drink out of streams. I'll carry Aquamira. And I actually just bought a water filter, which is one of those water bottle filters. I think Katahdin makes it. And it just has like the gravity filter where I can just squeeze and drink. But yeah, you know, I'm just an idiot where some people are like, I'm immune to Giardia. And you're like, no, you just haven't gotten it yet. Yeah. You know, um, and I just kind of self-select if I'm high in some in a subalpine area where I know that the water looks pretty clean, it's coming out of the earth. I just like that simple pleasure of just putting my hands underneath that spring and drinking out from underneath it. Again, like I'm just lucky. I don't think that I'm immune to Giardia, Giardia or Cryptosporidium or any of that. I just think that I haven't gotten it. I'm just playing Russian roulette, but how do you carry water? Oh, I just have, uh, um, I just usually go to the store and buy a, what is it? What's the long skinny water bottles? Is it not vitamin water? Um, like life water or something life like water. That? Yeah. There's yeah. just a form factor, which I like cause it just slips mm-hmm. down into the pack. I used to like Aquafina, uh, cause they had the wide mouth caps, but they don't make those anymore. <laughs> I still, uh, 20 years later, when I go to a gas station, uh, you know, I peruse to see the, if, if I can find the one with the wide mouth, mouth bottle. So I usually just fill that up, carry a liter of water with me. Some people carry more. I carry a dromedary for areas where you have to go long stretches of a waterless carry. It might be like 20, 40 miles. Um, but usually I just carry a, a, a liter of water. I've just learned from my own intake that that's kind of what I need. And I can usually find more water after that. Yeah. Uh, which trail has the longest dry section? I want to say that the continental divide might have the longest. There is a section in Wyoming. People always think that you're going to be in the mountains, but as you descend from the wind river range, you come into the great divide basin. Um, and it's just a long flat deserty stretch. And by desert, I don't mean kind of like the Mojave desert. It's so I think a little bit higher in elevation. I can't recall what, what that is, but I, I think that there's like a 30, mile stretch i just remember knowing like we got water in the morning and we weren't going to get any more water until the next day Hmm. so i think i filled up that one liter and then i had a four liter dromedary or reserve that i just filled up and then um we just by the time we got there it was 
it wasn't super hot. So we weren't sweating. I wasn't consuming a lot. And I think we'd hiked at night. Maybe we stopped during the day um, just to rest and then hiked at night. So again, we're just trying to conserve water. And then we hiked the next day, I think breakfast through lunch and then got more water. So it could have been like 30 or 40 miles, but that was 10 years ago. You know, if I talked to Valley Girl or some of my other buddies, they might say like, no, you idiot, it was only 20 miles. You're just, you're just embellishing. Well, memory's hard. Uh, it, it's really hard to get details correct. And I think a lot of times people just remember the last time that they told the story and they don't get that perfectly. And it's okay, man. It's, it's just stories, right? The memory changes and we never get the actual events perfectly correct. And, and what would that even mean in the first place? Yeah. And that, you know, I'm like, I'm glad you mentioned that because, um, you know, going back to my mom, you know, she died when I was 17, as I mentioned. And I don't have a lot of memories, like real memories. I have like ethereal feelings, but like, I can't pinpoint these explicit memories about her. Like I can these hikes and as I've gotten older. And I think the reason is, is because I just didn't recall those memories. They happened. I had a lot of good memories with her, but I just didn't talk about them. Not because I was holding that up inside, but just got older and you know like you're not 18 19 years old talking to your friends about like oh let me tell you about when my mom died or let me tell you about this memory right like you just go on through life and that's something that i've recognized early on so for all of my hikes these are things that are very near and dear to me so i've tried to make an attempt to remember these things and talk about them and you know my daughter is a good catalyst for that this weekend she kept asking me to tell the story about when I was scared or about the bear. So she's really intrigued about these trips, even though she can't really comprehend it. She just knows these little stories. So it's really fun that I get to relive these memories with her other than with random friends talking to me about it. Or, you know, you get a bunch of us who through hikers who hike together or not, you know, we're just on repeat, like, Oh, remember the CDT in 2009? Like my, uh, my wife does a great impersonation because she just like, oh man, it's so boring. These dudes just get together and talk about the same things like this hill, that hill, uh, this rain, how hungry they were. Oh, you remember the pancakes at uh, this place or that? But I don't care. It's really fun. You know, you're just reconstructing these memories and having a good time. And the more you do, the more you don't forget about, about them and they become cemented in who you are and, and, and you talk about it. So I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that is really important is to keep talking about these events, right? Like you get bogged down in life. And sometimes I'll just like think about something funny from one of those trips and smile. And it just kind of gets me out of the doldrums. I'm like, oh shit, I haven't been outside in a while. Like let me figure out another trip. We're going around Timberline with my buddy, Brad. I don't care if he was annoyed or not. I was just on repeat telling old stories like, oh man, in 2005, we did this or, oh, on this trip, we did that. And I could tell he probably was a little bit annoyed. He humored me, but it was just fun for me. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just a, it's a way to access a glimpse of the feeling that you had while that was going on. And if you have friends to share that with, I think that's great. You know, I'd love, I love being outside alone. Um, I like to hunt. I like to fish alone, but I think 
now that we're talking about it, one of the reasons that I'm constantly seeking people out to go with me is that we can have that memory when we talk about it later and 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 talking about it, having somebody to to share that with, you're able to to access that feeling a little bit better. Cause I'm not going to talk to myself about <laughs> something that happened while I was the only one who was there. You know, I might that accessing that feeling might be a lot more fleeting than if I could actually sit down and talk about, you know, all the things that went right and all the things that went wrong with any given situation. Do you think for your your perspective of how you've changed, like doing things alone to now enjoying people uh, to share that experience with, do you think it also has resulted in maturity of, you know, there might have been a learning experience and something to prove to yourself for the younger James and now to not only just share that experience with like have, have somebody to talk about it later in life with, but to share that experience. Like maybe like if let's say I went with you to hunt, maybe I don't hunt, but for you to say, Hey, here's what's sacred to me. Here's why public land matters. Here's what ethical hunting is. Here's why this is important. Like you get to not just share the experience, but share the values and I get to appreciate them maybe talk to me about how that transformation of, of being solo to now being more social has changed for you. Yeah. You know, I've, I don't know. It's an interesting question. And it's something that I'd have to give a lot of thought to, but I started guiding people when I was 14 years old. Mm. Um, so I've been sharing, sharing the experience professionally my whole life, um, you know, for, for the most part. And there was definitely a transition between like being a little kid who couldn't get enough hunting and fishing um, for myself to suddenly just trying to help somebody else access that experience. And now I'm getting to the point where I'm, I'm hunting on my own or hunting with other people, hunting in front of a camera, whatever, um, a little bit more often than I'm guiding other people. And, and, and that's great too. And that's also interesting, you know, the, the social aspect of being able to share this with a huge number of people, you know, by, by talking about it on podcasts, by, you know, posting about it on social media and engaging in conversations that come out through that. And, you know, these really beautiful films that we're making too, it's, it's a constantly evolving thing. And, you know, then this weekend, I just took, uh, took a couple of friends out and we went out and we hunted some elk and we, you know, my, my friend Montana shot, shot an elk and she hasn't shot one for a couple of years. And last night we had a ton of friends over and we, we had elk and I brought over some salmon and, you know, that's, that's a really cool experience too, is the, the community that you get in, in sharing meat. And I think more than sharing the experience anymore, sharing meat with people is my favorite part of it. And, in right. and, and it, it's not even close. Yeah. I mean, I think I was a recipient when I first met you, there was a barbecue and I think you had brought some uh, ribs and some salmon over. And uh, as a, as a person receiving that, that meat, you can't help, but think about where it came from because you're like, Oh, I harvested this. You're like, Oh man, that's cool. You know, like it's not just like you went to the grocery store and brought some chicken over. Um, you know, like I think as a recipient, you just, you think about where your food came from. And then with that, you're like, oh, you're out hunting, right? Like for someone who doesn't hunt, there's a, a lot of other questions that come with that. So I think it's just an, a nice way. And, you know, like I'm not, 
religious or spiritual by my own definitions, but I do like the idea of like honoring where things came from and thinking about it. Um, yep. So yeah, you know, I could, that's just to say, I was appreciative of you bringing that over. It was a different dining experience at the barbecue. <laughs> and the same way, like when my buddies who fish up in Bristol Bay, when we meet up and eat salmon, there's a camaraderie that comes with that, whether or not you are there harvesting the fish with them, you know, like, you can't help but be interested in saying like, oh man, like, what's it like? You know, like, did you see bears? Oh, you're, you're like, your fingers look like Jimmy Dean sausages because you've just been pulling salmon out of the, you pulling hundreds and thousands of pounds out of salmon or the nets the whole time. So yeah, I, you know, I, I, I get it. Yeah. And that, that connection with food is something that was very much a, a part of our lives for most of human history. And it's only recently that there is even the potential for a disconnect. A lot of hunters get a little bit righteous, I think, about, you know, making it sound like they're better than other people because they have that connection. And I, I don't support that at all. Like if, if your access to food is buying it at the grocery store, good for you. Like what a time to be alive that that's even possible. <laughs> um, I, you know, I have no problem with however people get their food and it. And if they want to think about where it comes from, great. That's awesome. I, and I, I encourage that a hundred percent, but I'm not going to trash anybody who just wants to buy a little bit of food and eat it. Like, that's a great thing. That's such a, such a wonderful thing for anybody to be able to do, because there's a lot of people who can't and would love that. And uh, yeah, anyways, I want to talk about gear a little bit. Uh, you mentioned that you went from a hiking boot down to a hiking shoe and some of, you know, the most effective people I know in the backcountry today were like Solomon trail runners and stuff like that. And one of the, the really common mistakes in my opinion that I see people making is they're wearing a taller, you know, quote unquote hunting boot that comes up over their ankle. And I see a lot more injuries coming out of that type of footwear than something that's shorter in your year in the woods, 10,000 miles on trails, uh, what have you kind of seen as, as far as footwear that, that works and doesn't? The evolution from boot to basically trail running shoe, I think is valid. Uh, I heard at one point a pound on your foot is worth six pounds on your back. Wow. I don't know if that's true. Um, that makes sense. But, but yeah, it does. Um, and my problem with hiking boots in the style of hiking that I'm doing is that I'm mostly just walking on a, a path. That said, the CDT, you're off trail a significant amount of time. But I, you know, like with boots and leather boots and Gore-Tex leather boots is that leather gets wet. It takes a long time to dry. And I've had my feet get trashed because I had calluses and my feet got wet in the boots. And, you know, they just stayed wet for days because the boots didn't dry out, especially in on the Appalachian Trail where it's really humid. You know, like imagine an afternoon thunderstorm, you got 80% humidity the days after, like your feet aren't drying out really quickly. So there's just like the idea of ventilation. And um, so like leather boots or shoes don't dry out that fast. Even Gore-Tex running shoes, they keep water out and they're breathable. But when water goes in, they also keep water in. So I think a big common misconception for lightweight running shoes or trail running shoes is to get Gore-Tex shoes. 
you don't want that because yeah, it may keep water out, but it defeats the purpose of those shoes trying to dry out pretty quickly. When it comes to support, I like the idea, you know, there was a trend a few years ago, I guess it's still around for running of like, okay, we want to barefoot running or we want to run free. Now you have uh, other people who are like, oh, okay, no, we want a lot of cushion or we're going to have a, your foot is angled in a certain way. Supposedly that that's more natural. Everyone has these different philosophies, but what I, for me, what I like is that when I run or hike on uneven ground, my ankles and legs and feet are getting stronger because they're having to pivot and turn and articulate in different ways with boots and, and higher, uh, you know, higher support shoes. You're relying on the boot to provide the, the support instead of your own body. I know that is advantageous in certain times because when you're off trail um, or I've done some hiking up in Alaska in the tundra and you're like, man, my feet are getting twisted and turning all over the place. Um, so maybe in those situations, it might be better. But I think the overall advantage of being able to have my feet dry out quickly and for my uh, legs, ankles, and feet to articulate and move faster and just not have that weight is just, a for me, and I think you can see from the trend, it's, it's something that is proven. You know, there's a reason why people do that. And then what you do is then you chase what brand and what model, you know, I think for me on the PCT, there was a Montreal shoe. I can't remember. It's like the High Line or the High Ridge. There was a, uh, a shoe that that was kind of the trendy shoe that everybody wore. And over time they changed that. And now I think a lot of people wear uh, Ultra, uh, which I have a pair. Um, is it the Lone Peak? And those are nice. You know, they're, they're not super beefy shoes. Um, you know, they say to replace your shoes every 500 miles just for running because the foam breaks down. Right. I can attribute to like, that is, that is real. Like I've taken a crappy pair or a pair of shoes and hiked 800 miles and I'm gave them to my buddy who then hiked 500 more miles and his feet were destroyed from that. My feet were destroyed towards the end of that. Um, so I just buy shoes every 500 miles or I replace my shoes every 500 miles because the foam just breaks down and the tread breaks down and, you know, like they're disposable. Even hiking boots are disposable. You know, people like the idea that I'm going to get them resold and get broken in. But over time, like the reason that you buy new shoes or new boots is because they haven't been broken down. Like there's advantages to that. So I just refresh my shoes every 500 miles. So you might need half a dozen pairs of shoes to make it through a trail do you use trekking poles? Yeah, I do. I, my buddy who I, the, uh, uh, Timberline trail was asking me about that and why it's like, man, my arms just get bored. Yeah. You know, like those people who walk or run and their arms don't move. And you're just like, man, that's kind of weird. <laughs> like, you know, you're, you're walking all day long. So if you don't ha have hiking poles, you know, you do the classic, you put your thumb underneath your shoulder straps you might put your hands behind your head. You're just constantly doing things with your arms. And I figure that the, for me, hiking poles or trekking poles just keeps my arms engaged. There's also just the benefit of not twisting your ankle and yeah. walking over uh, various terrain and falling one way and having the trekking pole save you. You know, when you're having to ford rivers, 
those poles are really important as stabilizers. You know, if you have a group of people, you can use one another to kind of huddle and use your mass and act as like a six legged tripod. If you have three people, if you don't, then you have those hiking poles to help you. Cause it's, it can be a trip, you know, like water is powerful, even if it's only ankle deep or knee deep. And if you're staring at the water, you can get a little bit of vertigo. And if you look up and see the horizon, you're like, okay, I'm fine. And you can just kind of lean on those poles just to, to hold yourself stable and, and kind of regroup. Um, but I also use them for, um, this goes back to gear and the other uh, idea of redundancy is like you use the same thing for multiple purposes. So that is what holds my tent up, you know, so one will hold the center pole of my tent. Um, the other I use to hold the bug netting down because I don't have a floor. I just use Tyvek, which is just, you know, it, what you see uh, when ho- homes are getting built. It's the house. It's, it's basically just Gore-Tex. Um, yeah, Tyvek is wonderful stuff. Do you know a bunch of countries use Tyvek for their money? Oh, um, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> that's what they print their money on is, is Tyvek because it's almost indestructible. Like you have to like be committed if you're going to tear that stuff. And uh, it holds ink really well. Uh, it's waterproof. You can send it through the washing machine. It's awesome. Yeah, no, usually I just got some new Tyvek and I put it in the laundry uh, because when you get it, it's, it's like a crispy dollar bill, right? You know, it, it has a lot of <laughs> uh, sounds to it. So I don't really like that. So I just put it in the dryer and it's like a, a baby's blanket when it comes out. Yeah, no, ty- Tyvek's awesome. And, you know, you're talking about using a tarp tent. I use teepees a lot of times now, and I've kind of gone away from even, even for bigger camps. Like I don't really bring a wall tent anymore. I don't have to bring 150 pounds of canvas um, when I can bring 12 pounds of, you know, whatever still nylon stuff they're using for, for teepees. But uh, having Tyvek for floor is, is awesome. Oh yeah. You know, I've been in some uh, storms that, definitely tested the boundaries of sill nylon and Tyvek and I've stayed dry. Yeah. Um, and so again, you know, like the industry builds these incredible tents and you see these expeditions and you see these aspirational things that people are using really expensive gear and product and materials for and when it comes down to it, you're just like, you know what? Sill nylon, Tyvek leather, like you don't need all of that. Uh, you just think you do. And if you, uh, you know, secure your tent, regardless of the shape or form and the right way where you're putting the lowest point towards uh, the area that where the wind is coming, you use your guy lines, you know, there, there's small little things that you can do where you don't have to carry extra gear. You just, you just use your, your stuff correctly. Yeah. What about navigation? Oh man. So I, I love a good old fashioned map and compass. Yeah. The AT you're just following dots on trees, which are these almost like a three by six inch uh, square. There's these white blazes and you just follow that um, all the way to Maine. So you don't really need navigation. And if you get lost, you're probably going to end in someone's back, end up in someone's backyard. Not to say there people don't get lost. I'm not taking that lightly, but if you pay attention um, you don't really need it. It's good to have backup, you know, and know how to use it. So if you're going to carry a map and compass, like don't just, don't just carry that, but know how to use it. So when I hit the Appalachian trail, I had the guidebooks that had the maps. I knew how to use a map and compass. Um, I just would always look for the, uh, white blaze on the PCT. 
you know, there's blazes. It's not as frequent. And I had the map set as well, but it was a pretty worn uh, path that we just followed in the Sierras because there was so much snow, there was no path. So then we bought, we knew that it was a high snow year. So a lot of us had bought I think seven and a half minute maps for that, those certain sections. Um, and that was easier to navigate because you can look at the peaks and valleys. You can look at the landforms and just know where you're at, you know, just take a bearing. You're like, okay, well, that's where we need to go from the map. The trail goes up through that pass. Um, on the CDT, man, I had maps in my pocket. I, I printed them out on eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. And I would go through two or three maps a day. And just always making sure that I was on the correct path. Somebody had an app on their phone. I can't remember. Maybe it was like iTopo maps. And it was the USGS seven and a half minute maps. And we always caught it cheating. Um, we all liked the idea of using maps and compasses. But every once in a while, if we couldn't figure it out, we would cheat. And he would pull out his phone and look to see where he was at. Now I think that everybody uses their phone. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Cause I still on, um, on the Timberline trail, I still brought a map and compass, even though I know we're just going around in a circle. Um, I did download the maps on my phone just in case, but we didn't have to use them. So uh, I don't know. I think everybody just uses uh, an app on their phone, which app, I don't know. I know there's a variety of folks. Yeah, there, there's a there's so many of them out there anymore. Yeah. Um, one of the things I've been struggling with this year is I have a new binocular harness that I absolutely love, and I've you know just struggled to find a good way to carry binoculars. And I carry you know binoculars, rangefinder, and a pistol all on my chest. But this the way the binocular harness closes is with magnets, and it disrupts the compass on my phone. Oh, no way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I've been uh, kind of doubting like how uh, how accurate this stuff is and and whether or not I'm actually going in the right way. And sometimes I I'm just confident, like I'm confident that this is wrong. <laughs> but I also don't want to doubt my equipment because, you know, that's that's kind of the, the mother of many problems. But uh no, I've, I've got to figure out how to slay that dragon. So now I hold my, my phone out at arm's length so that I can kind of eyeball into it to make sure it, it's actually doing right. You need to convert a, a trekking pole into a selfie stick just to get it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of trekking poles, by the way, man. I, I think that that is like mandatory equipment. You know, I end up with way too many pieces of carbon fiber when I go out, but a, a couple trekking poles is is just it's important especially for for hunters who are planning on carrying an animal back out again it just protects you so much um, from injury from falling uh it's it does give you a gain in efficiency and and i think it gives me like an extra 30 percent in my in the distance that i can go between resting um how i feel at the end of the day it seems like a 30 percent benefit but but just the injury prevention is is massive when I was out on this elk hunt this weekend, speaking of injuries, this is kind of funny. I think uh, we had two mountain lions that jumped across the road right in front of the side by side, like 10 feet in front of me. And I 
took off to to chase him and my buddy said that he'd never seen me move that fast in, in his life um but <laughs> i made it like 30 yards you know hoping they were going to go up a tree or something like that and i was like oh man my leg's not working right and i totally pulled a hamstring <laughs> these, these stupid mountain lions uh, oh. it's embarrassing you know getting old man it's not it's not easy wait did you chase them in uh in the side by side or did you know on foot on, okay. jumped out yeah they bailed off the road so i tried to sprint after them and uh yeah going from a cold start wasn't the move <laughs> <laughs> hey bring hey buddy bring my trekking pulse just pull the hammy yeah i know but that's an aside when i was getting out of the marines um you know i'd i'd been i'd been wounded twice spent you know the last year and a half in wounded warrior battalion i had like six to eight doctor's appointments almost every single day uh going to different specialists and most of what they were doing was talking about establishing a new normal like telling me all the things that i'd never be able to do again and and trying to work with me on like figuring out what I could do. It was like, maybe, you know, you could do this cool thing in an office or whatever. And it, it was killing me. It was freaking killing me listening to those people. And after a while I started to believe them. And I heard about a program called walk off the war. And it was supporting uh, combat wounded veterans who wanted to go hike the, the Appalachian trail or, or one of um uh, Appalachian, excuse me. Uh, it's all the or, same. Or one of one of the other through trails. And I wanted to do that in the worst way, but I wasn't um, I wasn't mentally confident enough to do it. And then I also didn't have enough stability in the relationships in my life that I felt like I could leave those people behind for six months or so. Uh, looking back, that's a regret. And I hear from a lot of people talking about the Marine Corps. Um, they say, well, I was going to go into the Marines, but blank, like whatever excuse. And I, I bet that you've heard a million people say, well, I was going to walk the Appalachian Trail, but whatever excuse. I, I don't have many regrets in my life, but that that is one of them. And it's something that that consistently eats at me that that there's this this thing out there that I wanted to do that is yet undone. And uh, I, th I think that there's going to be a bunch of people listening to this that are feeling that same way, maybe not about a through hike, but about something else. What, what do you have to say to somebody who specifically to through hiking one of the major trails is thinking about it, but they're concerned about the other aspects of their life, whether it's their relationships or their jobs or their dog or, or some other fear, what do you have to say to those people? Uh, let me ask a clarifying question. Are you asking, what should I say to inspire them to do that? Or are you asking or, or nodding to the idea of not being able to do something is okay? Either way. Maybe I'll try and answer both of them. I think the idea of this goes back to chasing your dream, man, that's a worthwhile goal. And you know, the Appalachian trail, some of these through hikes, they're fucking hard, not because of the physical ability, but because of the time commitment and what you have to leave behind or the illusion of what you leave behind. The reality is 
four, five, six months over a given lifespan isn't that much time. And nothing changes when you come back. More or less, everyone's still working. Everybody's still doing the same thing. I remember on the CDT, two weeks in, I chatted with my buddy Alphonse. And I explicitly remember him saying, it feels like you just left. And I remember saying, it feels like I've been gone for ages. And the CDT, I had, um, when I came back, I knew everyone's life was going to be the same. And my life was going to be the same very quickly thereafter, because I, I live a life where I'll go do these things. And then I just come back to the traditional life. Um, and that's, that's great. But I've learned that like nothing happens in the real world, but everything happens in your world. And you come out on the other side and you have an experience that you may never get to do again. And again, it doesn't matter if you finish or if you just take a couple steps, you kind of took a bet on yourself. And I think that's what's really important. So it's, it's easy to say because I've been on the other side, but to be honest with you, it becomes a little bit harder now. Like I've got a wife, a kid, a business, a house with a mortgage. So there's one that's on my bucket list right now, which is the Hey Duke Trail, which is named after um, Edward Abbey's protagonist in the Monkey Wrench Gang. Um, and it goes through Southern Utah, but I'm a little scared to say, how am I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to miss my wife. I'm going to miss these key moments of my daughter's life. But deep down, I know that the decisions that I make will become something that my daughter may look up to. They're going to be atypical. And I feel like the atypical decisions that you make are the ones that change you for the better. You know, sometimes it's hard to give up your life and pursue something else. Coming back it may be really challenging to find a job. But that's also some of the beauty of taking trips and giving up things is it builds resilience. It forces you to have to think critically and problem solve and say, how am I going to get a job? Oh, I got to find a place to live. So there's the logistical planning on the front end during and after that I think build these independent thinking, critical thinking skills that are important. And so for the people who have a butt, that's okay. You know, like we all have those butts. I think it's, it's if you're at a point in life where the unknown trumps everything on the other side of the butt, then it's worthwhile. And if you can do something really long, great. I love being gone forever. I love being gone as long as I can. Uh, it's just nice. The longer I'm gone, the more perspective I get. But if you can't, that's okay too. You know, you know, James, the Appalachian Trail, it ain't going anywhere, you know? So maybe it's a grip. Maybe it's just fuel for you to do it at some point later in life. You know, I've hiked with people who've been in their 50s, 60s, and 70 years old on all of these trails. Um, some people through hiking, some people section hiking. And that's great. I've had other people who they've done these kind of trips and then their body can't do it. And they just figure out something else that they can do. So it, for people who want to do a through hike, I don't know, you don't have to start with a four to six month trip. You can go hike the Sierra high route. If you want a more adventurous uh, trip, you can hike the John Muir trail. You can hike the Pacific Northwest trail. You can go to Europe and do all these pilgrimage trails I think it's just nice to find some balance. Maybe that's what is like 
the butt is just a fulcrum. You know, your life is, is kind of weighting that seesaw towards one side. And if you can weight something on the other end of that butt or that fulcrum, you just find a little bit more balance. Um, and I think that makes people better, you know, makes people better towards one another, makes people respect the environment, um, become a little bit more proactive and taking care of it. And maybe that's it. It's just that butt is a fulcrum and most people's lives are imbalanced because that's how our culture is set up. But I don't think that it has to be. It does take a tremendous amount of effort and force to go onto that other side and try and balance it out. But I think that's what, that's what we're all striving towards. That's really beautifully said. And I, I so appreciate your time your perspective and, and, and information and knowledge. These are tremendous experiences. And I feel like stepping off to do something daunting is important. And I want to encourage people to do it. And I hope that this is, this is the stimulus for somebody to take that first step to, to whatever it is in their life that they're, that they're thinking about doing. And, uh, and I also really enjoy catching up with you because it's been a couple of years. So. Oh yeah. You too, bud. I got to make it out there. Catch up with you. Yeah. I'd like that. I'd like that very much. And, and if you want to go wander around and, and try and come back with some meat, I'd be happy to help you. Oh yeah, man. That would be wonderful. Like I'd, I don't have any strong feelings either way, except for curiosity and intrigue. Well, I guess that is the strong feeling. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to go check it out. You know, if that's me just shadowing you. Great. Cool. Um, I don't know that there's a stronger feeling in the world than curiosity. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's what has led to my personal success of hiking, just doing these things that I'm probably not qualified at the beginning for that curiosity gets me there. You know, like, I'm, I'm on year seven of renovating a house. I didn't know how to do this. I'm a graphic designer by trade, but the curiosity of to go out into the woods, to try and figure out how mechanical systems work, um, to do all these things like that. That's an important trait for me. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again. And, uh, we're gonna, you still have an Instagram. Is that still a thing for you? Uh, like I, how, I mean, how, how can people get a hold of you if they, if they've got a question or something like that, they want to follow along in the, in the life of Panda. Oh, just tell them to email me. It's uh, <laughs> big, big at gmail.com. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll, we'll yeah. put a link down there for that. And uh, yeah. Thanks again, man. Yeah, man. Thank you. I uh, feel honored and it's a privilege to, to be here. So thank you, James. Thank you. October, November, December, they're just the best months out of the year, right? Whether it's for work or hunting or fishing, the holidays, spending time with your family, just it's awesome, right? And we've got some nice cold mornings now and you get to go out and have a a warm drink in the duck blind or out on the hillside where you're glassing for for mule deer or elk or or sitting in a tree stand waiting for a whitetail to come past. Or you're working on the job site and you get to take a break and have some nice warm coffee waiting for you. It's pretty nice. Having a cold drink at the end of the day, that makes everything a little bit better too. My favorite Stanley item right now is the 14-ounce titanium travel mug. Super lightweight because it's made out of titanium, so I'm willing to take it with me when I'm hunting, throw it in my pack. Fits in every cup holder out there, and it just seems to be the right amount of coffee. 
I, I like it. It's a really cool item and it fits a niche that I didn't have uh, filled in like any of my other drinkware categories, I guess. Uh, if you're looking for a Christmas present for somebody or just a gift that you want to help them out with, I recommend this because it's pretty cool and it's something that they don't have already. The way most discount codes work, completely honest, is uh, if you use it, then whoever gave you that code gets a kickback. Now, I'm not a salesman and I want nothing to do with that. So I'm going to pass along to you a discount code that Stanley gave me because they're great supporters of this podcast and they're great supporters of this audience, which I love. So if you use the discount code 6RANCH, the number six, the word ranch, you'll get 25% off anything you order from stanley1913.com. I get nothing back from that. I don't want anything. I just want to pass along some savings to you and save you a little bit of money and get you connected with this great company that makes really great products. And as we move through fall and, and get into winter and the holidays, just hope everybody's doing well and, and having a good time and, and that you get to Get out there and connect with nature and, and connect with your friends and family and have a nice warm drink while you're doing it. We're living in interesting times. If you go to the grocery store right now, you might not be able to find beef or pork or chicken or pet food or toilet paper. And buying beef from a ranch has always been tough because most people don't have enough freezer space or they don't know a rancher or don't live near one. The Six Ranch is solving that for you. This year, we only have eight spots left in our grassroots beef club, and it works like this. The first week of every month, we ship you a cooler full of all-natural grass-fed Coriani steaks, roasts, and burger from December until May. And being a member in this club also gets you an invite to come tour the Six Ranch during calving season in May and stay for a hosted dinner. Deliveries are available to Oregon, Washington, California, parts of Idaho, and Nevada. Now, this ranch has been in my family since 1884. It's one of the oldest businesses in the state of Oregon. We raise our cattle ethically and use traditional cowboy practices blended with modern grazing techniques. We also put a huge amount of work into wildlife conservation for species like mule deer, salmon, steelhead, rainbow trout, upland bird species. And this is healthy beef that you can feel good about eating. Learn more about the Six Ranch and get one of the last shares available at sixranch.com. Dot com. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch podcast. I'll catch you next week.